When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, hello, friends, and welcome to episode 95 of the Burden of Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Brian. Today's guest comes to us from our friends over at Speak On Podcast. You can find out more about them by visiting speakonpodcast.com. Today's guest is a lady named Becky Morrison. Now, I do her bio after the stinger this time, uh, so you'll find out more about her once we get into the show. But I just want to say this. This was a great discussion about happiness and how you can take some control of your life and increase your happiness level. And she's got a lot of great advice that she'll share through this discussion. So I'm not going to say too much more about it. I'm just going to get out of your way and let you get into this conversation with Becky Morris. Uh, Today's guest is Becky Morrison. Uh, Becky is a UC Berkeley certified executive coach with a passion for helping people live happy, priority aligned lives. I love that. And uh, she's got an interesting uh, journey to get there. Uh, After a successful career in financial services as a litigator and then in law firm administration, uh, managing several hundred attorneys and staff at one of the country's premier litigation firms, she was looking for a new challenge and transitioned to a small investment firm where she was COO. It was this transition that helped her recognize that her true passion was people. She started her own coaching practice, and Becky is also a lifelong learner who is currently working towards her LLM in taxation from Georgetown Law School, and currently lives in Virginia with her husband and two children. Becky, it sounds like you just got a ton of free time on your hands, so thank you for joining us today. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm interested with your, your background uh, to really hear how you answer kind of that foundational question uh, of the show. What does the phrase burden of command mean to you? You know, it's interesting. I've been thinking about that phrase and thinking about what it might mean. And I will tell you the first thing that I thought about when I read it. I actually thought about something that happened to my daughter. And so I'll just, it'll be a short story, but I think it'll explain what I think about when I think about that, or one of the things that I think about when I think about that phrase. Okay. So as a freshman, she was put in a leadership role. Um, And that's young in high school to be put into a leadership role. And so she was navigating being early in her freshman year, making new friends, getting to know people, and also being asked to serve as a leader within the student community. And she came home one day and said, Mom, I'm not sure I want to be a leader anymore. And I said, well, you just, I mean, what do you mean? What what happened? What 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 kind of brought this to the forefront? Yeah. And her answer was, I don't want to be held to a higher standard than everyone else. Mm. And so that really like hit me as one of the ways that people perhaps mistakenly think about leadership as being a chore. Um, and the solution for her, I'll be, I'll be frank with you, is we talked, I mean, I said, okay, well, let's talk about what that means. And we talked about what it was that she felt that she was being asked to do that was different than what she might actually expect of herself. And, you know, it was an, a typical ninth grade answer, right? Like, well, at lunch, you know, some people goof around. And because I'm a leader, I don't feel I could goof around like that. And I said, well, do you even want to be goofing around? I mean, <laughs> right. let's talk about you and what your values are and what your standards are. And is what is being asked of you as a leader really all that different from how you would choose to carry yourself anyway? And so is it an actual burden or just a perceived burden that you're feeling about holding yourself to a higher standard? So that's my my answer to your to your question, which I really, really like as a question. Yeah, no, thanks. And, and, and I like that story. And, and you know, it's it's... I think it's something that a lot of leaders really find themselves facing that question, uh, you know, because as you put it, you know, she was kind of uh, thrust into this leadership role, I think was the word you used. Yeah. And, 
you know, that that's, uh, yes, as a freshman, I mean, we can all pretty much remember what it was like being a freshman, our freshman year. Uh, not a lot of people gave freshmen that, that respect or even that authority. But what's interesting is, you know, she was chosen, right? And, and, and mm-hmm. that tells me that she had a lot of, like, innate leadership qualities already. And when you're in that position it's very hard to say, I don't want to be a leader anymore because you really didn't have that choice. Other people look to you as a leader, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, frankly, that was part of the challenge for her, right? Was that maybe she didn't see all the same things as a freshman um, that other people were seeing in her that made made her a good choice for leadership. And I think, frankly, I see that happen even in the workplace, right? People will get tapped for opportunities, and they may not always see in themselves the things that other people are seeing that cause them to receive that tap. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a great point, because it's it's very easy. You know, humans are kind of weird like that, right? We, we can see the negative things very easily that people say about us. And we have a hard time believing those positive things that people say about us. We think they're being nice or kind or, you know, whatever. But, you know, it's it's nice to just listen to the feedback that people give you sometimes, right? Yeah. I mean, there are often times where I'll be working with a, a coaching client and a lot of my coaching clients... Um, inevitably, in our work, the issue of confidence comes up, right? In some aspect. And just to even ask the question of, well, yeah, you've gotten this feedback, and it's positive, and you're not sure that you buy in, or you think it, the, you know, yeah, they're saying I'm a good presenter, but I'm not sure because blah, blah, blah. To ask yourself, what if it is true? What if you let that be true? Yeah. Yeah. And so just that alone, that asking that question and, and giving yourself permission to be in the possibility of that can be something that that yields a big shift. Well, yeah. And, and this ties in great with, uh, you know, one of the things that you like to talk about. And, and I, I love the way you put this. Uh, authenticity is the new presence. So mm-hmm. what, what do you mean by that? So a lot of the work I do one-on-one coaching is with what I will call emerging leaders. And by that, I don't mean that they are new to leadership, but they are at a new level of leadership. And often they come to me saying, well, I'm at this new level of leadership. I'm at the big the big kids table, and I need to figure out how I'm going to be the right kind of leader to be successful here. And our work then centers initially on looking at what skills and abilities and blind spots they might have. But more often than not, the real work comes when we look at who they actually are as a leader. We, A lot of people have this mistaken idea that to be an effective leader, you have to put on almost this leadership costume. You have to act a particular way. You have to act the way other effective leaders in your organization act. But the reality is the most effective leader you will ever be is the authentic leader that you actually are. Mm -hmm. And so giving yourself permission to own the parts of you um, that maybe you felt you had to hide away or let go of because other leaders don't look like that or act like that or make the same decisions, right? Mm -hmm. I think we all have learned over time that the more perspectives and approaches that are within an organization, the richer the organization's success becomes. And so that starts at the top, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I like, I like everything you're saying there. I mean, because it's true and it's, you know, it's what I, I, I try to drive home with some of the folks I work with is leadership isn't a synonym for perfection, (laughs) <laughs> right, it, it's those imperfections that actually make you a better, uh, more authentic, more relatable leader, and you got to embrace right. those, right? Absolutely. And when you talk, when you talk to, like I do, people who are at you know the VP C suite level, it is often their drive for perfection or almost perfection that has been part of their success to getting to that point. But trying to continue to hold yourself to a standard of perfection, that's bringing back the burden of command that doesn't actually need to be burdensome. Yeah. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a friend, uh, Jim Bouchard, and he 
Uh, he swears that, that he stole it from somebody, but he can't remember who he stole it from. <laughs> but he's got a, a saying that he kind of lives by. It says, uh, uh, perfection isn't a destination. It's a never-ending journey. <laughs> isn't that the truth, though? Yeah. Right? I mean, it's just... To believe that we will be perfect is to believe that someday we will stop being human. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> right. And and it's, you know, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because, you know, I mean, you've had a lot of experiences with this. It's it's those moments of imperfection and how we handle them that really, really endear us to the folks who choose to follow us, right? A hundred percent, right? So, I mean, if you can, what I see a lot of leaders do or I must, I should say, rather say a mistake I see a lot of leaders make is trying to hold so tightly to perfection and then being ill-equipped to deal with the mistake that they make. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you think the message is that that's sending to the team of people around you? Number one, don't make a mistake. Number two, if you make a mistake, hide it. Yeah. yeah. Bury it. Let's not talk about it. Be embarrassed about it. Let it set you back. That's not the, that's not how you want your team to work. I think everyone will acknowledge that. So you need to work how, how you want the people around you to work. And that means making mistakes, taking accountability for those mistakes and repairing. And that is at the heart of leadership in a way that perfection can never be. Yeah. Well, you, right. And, and if you don't have that environment, and I, I love everything you just said there, because if you don't have that environment where making mistakes is okay, you don't know what you're missing out on because some of some of our greatest inventions were, quote, mistakes mm-hmm. that it took us, you know, sometimes we found the use immediately. Sometimes it took us a few years to find out the the use for this mistake. But, you know, 3M, they do a great job of holding on to these, quote, mistakes to see where they fit <laughs> in the future. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and it's the same thing with leadership and, and people. You may make a mistake here, but you might also be reinventing a way to deal with people or learning a new way to deal with people. And mistakes are great. Mistakes are awesome. And actually, sometimes mistakes can be the thing when it comes to people management that unlocks a challenging relationship. Yeah. You know, when when you can acknowledge a mistake that has been made and when you can also be human Sometimes the basis for a challenging people management relationship is simply a mistaken belief that the person has about you that you expect them to be perfect. And so when you show up imperfect and effective anyway, all of a sudden you're less threatening. All of a sudden the walls start to come down. All of a sudden there's permission for that person to be a little bit more vulnerable and tell you what isn't working for them or what they're afraid of. And suddenly you're healing a relationship. Yeah. No, I love it. And and just to be clear, like, uh, you know, authenticity, like uh, a lot of people feel like authenticity and vulnerability is just being widely wide open about anything and everything and sharing all of the gory details of your personal mm-hmm. life and all that. And, you know, it, it's really not all of that, right? Authenticity just means really kind of, and I like, that's why I like how you put it, it means being present in the moment and letting that moment really stand on its own, right? I, I think that's a big part of it. I mean, I think, so authenticity for me in the work that I do, authenticity starts with knowing and understanding yourself and then bringing your full self to the work that you do. And that does not have to mean burying your soul 24-7. I like it. Well, and that that kind of brings me to uh, another uh, topic that you like to discuss. And uh, again, I like the the way you put this, the formula for maximum (laughs) happiness. So what is the formula for maximum happiness? So the formula for maximum happiness, in my experience, is really pretty simple. It is do more of what matters to you and let go of the rest. And that you know, sounds sort of almost too simple to be true. But just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy. And so the way I like to think about it is there's sort of three things that get in the way of our ability to execute on that formula. The first one we've just talked about, it's authenticity. It's do you really know yourself? Do you know where your happiness comes from and what you need and what actually matters most to you? And are you willing to claim that externally? The second 
and I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, but it, the, the second, <clears throat> because we live in an action-driven society, often we jump right from knowing what matters to us to trying to go and get it. And so there's what I call the physical energy gap. Are you actually spending the time on the things that matter most to you as much as possible and letting go of the rest as much as possible? But what sometimes stops us from executing on that physical energy gap is what I call the emotional energy gap. Do you have the mindset, the beliefs and the feelings that will allow you to actually publicize and then execute your your own individual kind of happiness recipe? And so that's how I like to think about happiness. And it's how I a framework I like to use to enable people to bring more happiness into their right now into today. Well, yeah. And again, it, it's a great way of looking at things because, you know, how many times did we see or hear, you know, our parents or grandparents and even to this day, some some of our coworkers who are just absolutely miserable <laughs> at work because what they're doing doesn't matter to them beyond a paycheck, right? Yep. Yeah. And so how do you get those folks comfortable with the idea that, you know, sometimes a paycheck just isn't enough? You, there, there's other things that you need to take into consideration. So when I'm working with people on this piece, and frankly, this is the sort of thesis of, or a big part of, of a book I wrote called The Happiness Recipe, I really ask people to take the time to connect in very broad ways and very deep ways with what brings them joy. And that might sound, again, sort of surfacey and, and like platitudes, but let me explain what I mean. And mm-hmm. I'll take a simple example. A lot of times I'll sit down with somebody and say, okay, well, when are you happiest, right? And their answer will be, well, when I'm on vacation. Now, if I had five people answer the question and five people answer "I'm on vac- when I'm on vacation, there would probably also be at least five different reasons why vacation makes those people happy. Mm-hmm. For some people, it's the freedom from responsibility. For some people, it's being able to be somewhere that the sun is shining instead of where it's snowy. For some people, it's experiencing a new culture or having an adventure. For some people, it's connecting with family. We often, though, don't take the time to figure out what it is it really that's bringing us happiness about that experience. And so what that means is we we work to vacation because we know vacation makes us happy. Well, what would happen if you couldn't take a vacation? How would you bring happy into your life? You'd have to know what's underneath that vacation-based happiness. That's a scary question to ask somebody is what would happen if you couldn't take vacation again, right? <laughs> Well, a little bit it is, but like, let's look at what's happened in 2020 and 2021, right? right? There are people who work to fund their travel habit and for whom 2020 and 2021 have been really difficult because travel just hasn't been on the table, not in the same way anyway, right? Mm-hmm. And I know some of those people have been really unhappy as a result, And then I know others of those people who've done this kind of work to figure out what is it that I enjoy about travel, and they've found other ways to incorporate those things into their life in a revised way. Maybe it's not the same as travel. Maybe if we were, you know, had a happiness meter, it wouldn't hit the numbers the same way, but they are less unhappy and they are more happy in their day-to-day because they understand where their happiness comes from and what their alternate sources of happiness might be. Yeah. No, and, and again, it, it reminds me of the the old Mark Twain uh, saying, you know, if you if you make your uh, vocation, or yeah, if you make your vocation your vacation, you never work a day in your life. And uh, you know, I think that this kind of this right here is it's not all about like an actual vacation. If I'm understanding you right, it's not about actually like leaving a vacation. It's not dreading coming into work. Well, I think that's a big part of it, right? And then it's about understanding, like, let me just take a simple example. If the thing that about vacation that makes me happiness is, happiest is having time to connect with my family, and I resent the time I'm not on vacation because I don't build that into my schedule, well, how can I adjust my working schedule to have more family connection? If I can make any adjustments, I'm automatically happier. And then we can do the same thing with work, right? If you think about your day at work, you might have an immediate reaction. You might say, oh, I love my job or I hate my job. 
I don't care which of those two reactions you have. If we really dug into what your work life looks like, there would be parts that you enjoy and parts that you don't enjoy. And so let's break it down into its parts and figure out the ones that you do enjoy because that helps guide us to having a work life that feels more like a vacation or more happy, right? Yeah, definitely. And and I'll use, you know, myself as an example here. And, you know, it was not too many years ago that I was just 100% miserable uh, with what my day job was mm-hmm. uh, because it was, you know, it, it was it's was a job that was actively being marginalized and I felt less and less important uh, to the organization. And then one day I got the opportunity to put my Marine Corps background uh, to work and, and provide some leadership training to folks. And it was very well received and more people started asking for that leadership training. And so uh, I, I kind of found this new purpose because I, I actually love uh, you know leadership development and coaching folks and helping them grow. And yeah. you know if it wasn't for that happening... I would have probably left that organization and not thought twice about it. Now I'm all in because I'm actually doing something that, that brings that happiness and fulfillment to my career. And I would never want to leave that organization. Right. And if, and if you had been a coaching client of mine during that transition, right, that would have been the conversation. Well, what is not working for you in this job? What is working for you? And how do we shift the balance so that you have more of what's working and less of what isn't working? And for you, I mean, I heard you say something really big, which is it mattered that I was being, and you use the word marginalized. And I take that to mean it mattered that I wasn't being valued and appreciated. And then they gave me an opportunity to use my gifts and people came and appreciated. And all of a sudden I was back in. And so for you, that was a hook to get you re-engaged. For some people, their hook looks different. And we have this idea of what hooks should look like, but they're so individual. And so I think it, you know, where authenticity comes in is really knowing yourself and knowing your hooks, because then you're in a position to ask for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and that's a great point. And again, as we mentioned before, you know, that that's a hard conversation for people to have with themselves. But as leaders and, and folks who, you know, take that responsibility of caring for the, the people that work for us, how can we really, like, get to know that level of detail about somebody and help guide them uh, to happiness? Can we? I mean, I think so. I think this is where, as a leader, you have to bring your curiosity, right? Mm-hmm. You can't assume that other people are wired the same way that you are. And I think we all intellectually know that. And then we proceed to live our lives as as if we've forgotten. Um, (laughs) It's a good way to put it. Yeah. You know, and so when you look at your team, right, when something goes really well, maybe instead of assuming that the recognition they'd like is an all company wide email or a happy hour or whatever it is that you might do to recognize Maybe ask, say, I am so pleased with this, you know, your work on this project. How would you like to be recognized? Mm. Yeah. All of a sudden, you've opened the door for that person to bring their whole self to the conversation and for them to begin to get what they need from their work environment. Mm. I like that. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's something I've said on this show before. I don't think I've said it for a while, but you know, leadership really is just another relationship, right? <laughs> it's true. Yeah. It really is. Yep. Yes. And, and that's the thing, like what, what uh, you're talking about here, these are all the things, you know, kind of, again, I love the way you put that about, uh, we, we forget that we knew these things, but you know, all of these, these things that we're talking about is, these are the things that any successful relationship is built on. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And and I would say, so I gave you the example of the positive, right? Yeah. But the inverse is also true. I heard something recently, and I thought it was so powerful. It was a statement that under every complaint is an unmet need. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think I've been working with a couple clients on exploring that in two ways. One is um, when somebody comes to you, from, you know, on your team frustrated about something, really trying to understand what's under that frustration. What's the unmet need? Is it that they aren't feeling heard? Is it they actually need more support from you? Is it they need, that they need some specific resource? 
you know, really digging in instead of getting caught at this surface level. And then the same applies as you think about your own frustrations, really taking a moment before you express those frustrations or before you try to quote unquote solve them to think about, well, what's really going on here? What's the unmet need and how can I meet it? Um, and who needs to meet it? Because often we take our complaints to people who can do nothing to solve our unmet need. <laughs> and, and especially with the advent of social media, right? <laughs> yes, 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 absolutely. Yeah, I mean, but, I'll just give you a, a quick anecdote to, you know, the, to that one there. Like, um, you know, I live outside uh, on the west side of Indianapolis. A lot of my listeners know that. And, you know, we're taping this on February 18th. We just had really our only snowstorm of the season so far. We had 10 to 12 inches of snow. And I feel sorry for the folks who run uh, the town's uh, Facebook page because they're bombarded with, when is my road going to get plowed? When is my road going to get plowed? What's wrong with all of the, you know? And it's like, that's not what we do here, right? We're here to share <laughs> news. And if you have a question, ask these people. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, but I like that, that uh, part about a behind every complaint is an unmet need. Because one of the things my wife and I do whenever we, we have more, I don't want to say arguments, I'll say conflicts mm-hmm. over reviews, you know, whether it be Yelp, whether it be mm. Google or whatever. And she'll, you know, I want to try a restaurant and she'll be like, oh, well, I looked it up and they only had like two stars, and, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, why? Let's read the reviews. Mm-hmm. And what's very interesting is how many, how many five star reviews actually only get two stars because the waitress didn't smile at them or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, they were out of this one thing due to some national shortage. <laughs> Right. Those are things that are beyond their control. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So reviews and and complaints are very interesting to listen to and get behind what's really behind them. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's look, it's a theme, right? We've been talking about that with happiness. We've been talking about it with complaints. And I think it's maybe driven a little bit by the fact that and I think the Yelp review is a great example that we live in this world where we are beginning to be conditioned to try to express everything in 160 characters and consume everything in 160 characters. So we actually are not spending much of our day going deep with any information. Mm -hmm. And what's getting lost, I think, is the ability to process this important stuff. Like, where does your joy really come from? What unmet need is really under your complaint, right? And to evaluate that for, you know, evaluate the communication that's coming about that to us from others. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, it's a sound, like you said, it's this sound bite instant kind of, uh, mm-hmm. of environment. And, you know, and, and we've, uh, I, that's why I like what you're talking about here. Cause we have, we, you know, the old saying about your, you know, your, your thoughts become your words, your words become your actions. You know, that thing, it's, it's kind of the same thing we're seeing right now is, we're leading people with this kind of soundbite mm-hmm. uh, type of leadership. And, and as we know from social media, there's a lot more to the story than what you can get in a short soundbite type of segment. Always. Yeah. Without fail, right? there, It is the rare soundbite that really gives us a meaningful, factual summary of what's actually going on. Yeah. No, it's... Uh, that's good. That's good. I like that. I like that. And um, so I kind of want to shift gears a little bit because it, it, it kind of ties into to all of this here. But I like this concept that you have about getting people to understand the season that they're in. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, what do you mean when you say season? Well, I don't mean winter, spring, summer and fall. So let me start there. <laughs> there you go. It's a good place. What I mean is something that's much more individual to each person. And I think what we fail to appreciate often is that during the course of our life, and particularly during the course of our career, we're shifting through various, I'll call them containers, I call them seasons, right? But like various phases, various chapters. And each chapter comes with a little bit of a different set of things that are possible and things that we want to prioritize and things that are part of our happiness recipe. 
but often we don't take the time to really recognize that our season has shifted. So we're operating with an old happiness recipe, with old limits, with old, um, you know, rules and approaches, and then wondering why we're not feeling happy where we are today. And so we already talked about one great example of this. We talked about the world traveler during COVID, right? Mm -hmm. And the people who acknowledge that, okay, new season, new parameters, let me adjust, are the ones who were able to retain a higher level of happiness. And by I want to add, and we haven't said this yet, but I want to say it. When I say happiness, I don't mean that they smile all the time. They're human, right? (laughs) But they're more equipped to process all of the emotions. They know how to bring more joy into their life when they need it. And then they do it. You know, they make that happen. So that's what I mean when I say they're happier. Yeah. Well, and I'm glad you made that distinction because it's very important, right? Because, you know, when you're already grouchy, grumpy at the bottom and something happens, it's, it's, you know, just put you even further down when you're quote happy. You said it's not about being all smiley face all the time. When bad stuff happens, you've got a little bit more cushion. You got a little bit more resilience, right? Yeah. And I think maybe resilience is what I really mean. But the way that I describe it is I say joy actually requires being equipped to feel all the feelings. Yeah. And it, and it, so and it's okay yeah. for that, right? I mean, you yeah. can be happy, sad, uh, all those things, and sometimes even at the same time. I was just going to say that. Yeah, absolutely. That. And we try to make it binary, right? Like I'm either happy or sad. And that is not – we are way more complex as as machines um, yeah. than, than that allows. And so, yeah, I mean, so that's how I think about seasons. And I really think taking a moment to identify – the season that you're sitting in today, and then to identify what you need to prioritize in light of that very simple happiness formula can really make for an easier, happier life right now instead of waiting to earn your happiness at some later date. Yeah. Well, and again, I I like to use myself as an example here and, and you'd be kind of open with my audience. Uh, you know, my Marine Corps career, uh, and this is how I know what you're talking about. Seasons is true on both the uh, kind of physical and emotional level. You know, my Marine Corps career was cut short. Uh, I was served during uh, the late 90s when the anthrax vaccine hit. Mm. And I was one of the one of the folks who had adverse reactions to the vaccine and uh, was ended up being because the politics behind it, I, I, I just give the short version of I was medically uh, discharged from the Marines. I went in mm-hmm. wanting to have a 20 plus year career and then, you know, had an order of 10 days. You're going to be discharged from the Marines. And uh, my the, the medical situation that was happening with me was causing me to pass out and my heart rate would get too high. So I went from being kind of your stereotypical gym rat, Marine, eating whatever I wanted to because I was going to the gym, you know, sometimes twice a day, working it all off to not only not being a Marine anymore, but physically not being able to do that. And I didn't make the mental uh, or the the habit uh, adjustments. And I kept eating the way I did, but I wasn't able to work out the way I did. So not only was mm-hmm. I no longer a Marine, but my health was deteriorating because I started packing on weight quick, fast and in a hurry. Mm-hmm. And I was I was miserable, and it really took me coming to grips with, as you call that kind of season shift, uh, to to get back on a path to happiness. And not only for me, but for the people that worked with me, like the people that worked with me early in my career, hated me. <laughs> <laughs> I was grouchy. I was grumpy. I was, you know, I I, I tried to treat civilian employees like like a a marine. And that doesn't go over well. Uh, Not everybody joins the Marines for a purpose. Uh Uh (laughs) And so it was not making that seasonal shift that really took a toll on me, you know, emotionally and physically and the folks around me. And so, yeah, not coming to grips with that is huge. Yeah. And I appreciate you sharing that story because I think it's a great illustration. And And it's a great illustration of how... Maybe we could sit here and listen to that story and say, what do you mean you didn't understand the season had changed, right? Like your whole life had changed, but you didn't. And I get it because people don't. They don't slow down. 
And sometimes because some changes can be dramatic, like the one you described, but they don't slow down or don't have the capacity to slow down and really say, oh, different season. I actually need to do a whole set of redefining here. Um, So let me take a minute and do that before I charge ahead. And so I'll often, when I find my my level of happiness or my level of frustration or my level of general grumpiness, um, climbing, I'll, that is often the first question I will ask myself is, wait a minute, has there been a season change that I didn't pick up on? And they, some of them can be really subtle, right? Mm-hmm. And as a parent who now has a 17 and a 13-year-old, I thought, well, once you're a working parent, you're just a working parent and you adapt. But let me tell you, <laughs> there, there's like a new season every six months in parenting and what is needed from your kids and what they're able to give and what you're able to give or need to give. And so being aware of those shifts alone, maybe not even necessarily, um, you know, engaging in a full analysis of how you need to shift, but just knowing that things have have shifted really can be powerful. Well, right. And, you know, you mentioned this situation we're uh, still in uh, under COVID you know, that that's kind of a seasonal shift there, too, especially if you're, again, like me and you're an extrovert and you thrive mm-hmm. on being around other people. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm at home and mm-hmm. uh, I have, you know, I love my wife to death. She she fills the role very well of uh, co-worker. But, you know, it's not the same thing as having like six, seven, eight other people that you can talk with. Right. Absolutely. And how and then finding in this new world, I mean, I think now we've been in it so long, right, that a lot of people have navigated to their place of connection that works. But for those in the world like you who thrive on that human connection, there's no one size fits all answer on how to get it. Right. You know, Zoom doesn't work for everybody. And I don't know. So I won't go on and on about that. But I think like, it's also about acknowledging that like, you have to find the way that works for you to fill in the gap of what's missing. And give yourself the freedom to explore and try and do that. Um, And I think what we can get stuck in is the the moment of resentment that things have shifted, right? Well, I don't want to have to try and figure out how to get connection in my life. This just stinks. So yeah, no, I mean, it's it's valuable. And like you said, uh, I like this you know, having people come to grips with this idea that, that, you know, the seasons are subtle. They're not always voluntary. Sometimes they are, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's easy to, to do what I did. You know, like I said, I was, I was mad for a few years over the way this whole thing went down. And, uh, you know, I let that kind of keep me stuck. Um, but you know, when you come to grips, I mean, but that's life, you know, things, life has changed. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So that's uh, why I find so much of the work in the change management space, a super useful, but I think about it not as managing change. I think about it as managing life because you're absolutely right. Life is change. Yeah. And that's what keeps it fun and exciting, right? Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And when you can reframe it that way, right? When you can accept that change is truly inevitable that's when you start to develop the skills and the the resilience and the flexibility to walk through change with a little less pain. Yeah. No, I like, uh, like a really good example, right. Of, of kind of what we're talking about here is uh, I heard uh, John Miller, author of QBQ. Uh, he was doing another, he was doing an interview and he said, look, he goes, it's, it's sometimes it's this simple, right. Of, of changing your mindset. He says, imagine you get up in the morning and you utter the words, man, I've got to go to work today. <laughs> you know, he said, now imagine waking up the next morning and saying, man, I get to go to work today. Mm-hmm. You change one letter. That's it. And it, yep. it completely changes your entire outlook on life. And, you know, it's it's the same thing here with these the seasons. Is sometimes it is as simple as one letter changing, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. Thank you. That was great. Yeah. No. Uh, so again, so we've talked about uh, quite a bit here, but there's there's one other topic that, that you uh, love to speak on. And I love this because I cannot tell you how many folks, bright, young folks I've seen come into organizations and get burnt out because they don't know how to do this. And you like to ask folks the question, are you saying no enough? Yep. 
I almost believe it's not, I'm not quite sure this is true, but I almost believe that it is impossible to say no too much. Mm. There might be some people for whom that is not true, but I would say for the majority of us, we are not giving no enough space in our world. And there's all kinds of reasons why we don't. Starting from childhood, right? Mm-hmm. For a lot of us, it might be one of our first or one of our early words. And then we're told that there's only certain times you're allowed to say it, right? Mm-hmm. And so already we're training ourselves not to use this amazing tool that's available to us to help us live that formula for maximum happiness. And so I really like to push my clients and push my friends and push my family on what they're saying yes to and really making no a regular part of their world, which is hard to do. (laughs) It's not easy. Oh, definitely. And there's a lot that goes into why we don't say no. There's a fear, right? There's fear of missing out. There's fear that if we say no to this opportunity, the right opportunity or another opportunity won't come along. There's guilt, fear, you know, like this feeling that we might be letting somebody else down or that we might not be living up to someone's expectations. So there's a lot of work to be done to unpack why no is hard for any given individual. But I'm telling you, it's probably the two most powerful words in the English language. Yeah. No, I'll agree. And, and, you know, I mean, you, you just hit it, you know, the, that, that need to, especially early in careers, when we're trying to make a name for ourselves, trying to get established, it's hard to say no. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, just seeing the mental stress and anguish that some folks put themselves through so they don't have to say the word no, it's, it's just mind boggling the effort that folks go through. It's true. It's true. And I I mean, I'll be the first to admit, I was not a great no-sayer for most of my career and, and for most of my life, even in my personal life. I'm a, I'm, a per, I've, I'm a person with a heart of service and a heart for service. And so when people come and need help, I want to help. Mm-hmm. That's my initial inclination and instinct. But the reality is that is not sustainable, number one. And number two, that is not my happiness recipe. And I know that for sure. Uh, and so being empowered with those two things has been really, really helpful to um, get me closer to being able to say no more often. And and a phrase I've heard a lot recently that has hit home for me is that no is a complete answer. Yeah. We don't need to always explain. We don't need to always justify. We don't need to equivocate. And all doing all of those things is a signal, I think, that you're uncomfortable with saying no. And it's a good signal, a good cue to drop back in and connect with where does this decision fit in my happiness recipe or formula? Mm-hmm. Does this thing that I'm about to say yes to matter to me? If it doesn't, by giving my energy to this thing, what am I not going to be able to do that matters to me? And really think that through before you take it on. Yeah. No, I agree. I 100% agree on that. That's, that's one of the things I, I tell folks I think is kind of the, uh, uh, the, the unspoken of power of setting goals because it, it gives you that uh, what I call a clarifying question. Yes. Does this help move me towards my goals? If the answer is yes, okay, then we need to give it some thought. If the answer is no, then your answer should be no. Because you want to be, and you know, talking about happiness, does it get me Mm -hmm. happier? Yes. Move forward. No. Say no. Say no. Yeah. And and look, I mean, I've got some, some tools and tricks up my sleeve for helping people deal with guilt. And I've got some tools and tricks up my sleeve for helping people deal with the what I think is the scarcity mindset behind this idea of like, if I don't say yes to this opportunity, I won't get the next opportunity. Because by the way, history suggests that's just false, right? right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what we just talked about with change, right? There's too much change mm-hmm. going on. And too many moving pieces in the world for there not to be another opportunity. Correct. 
Correct. And so, I mean, it's like the myth of an opportunity I can't pass up. There is literally no such thing, right? There might be opportunities that are too good for your happiness to pass up 100%. But there's no such thing as the generalized, like, this one was too good to say no to. It's If you need to say no, you need to say no, regardless of how sweet the opportunity might look on paper or might look to society or might look to your friends, you know, there's no such thing. Well, yeah. And that kind of ties in uh, to kind of uh, that, that uh, you, you, the way you put it, uh, invite your nervous system to be a partner in your process. Mm-hmm. Being in tune with that is a good way to know when you need to say no, right? Yeah. I mean, and I think I would just, the most important thing I think to realize on a very basic nervous system level well, there's two things, really. The first is that um, our nervous system has a job to keep us safe. Mm-hmm. It is not a sophisticated safe keeper, <laughs> right? It looks and says, does this situation seem familiar? Do I know how to preserve life connection? Have my needs met here? If yes, continue. If no, don't do it. Right. And so that means in a lot of ways, our nervous system protects us from positive change. Yeah. Protects, I use that word loosely. But (laughs) (laughs) number number two, the other important thing to know is that the pathways in the for the in the brain or in the nervous system, the pathways from brain to body are far outnumbered by the pathways from body to brain. What does this mean? This means that actually it's our body that first senses threat. So often we can be in a triggered body state and not even realize it. So how does this all play into personal development growth and saying no? Well, here's the deal. First is being able to recognize when what your triggers are. Where does your nervous system rear its head and say, don't go there, it's not safe. And then what do you want to do about it? How do you want to answer your nervous system? And so do you want to ignore it, which I don't recommend? Do you want to tell it to sit down and shut up? Also don't recommend. Or do you want to make it a partner in your progress by acknowledging the warning that it's giving you, but telling you that you're telling it that you're in charge and you're going to charge ahead with this growth and change, regardless of whether it is comfortable with the risk or not? And then when you grow and change and when you have success, making sure that you celebrate it so that your nervous system gets this cue in the form of all of the brain chemicals that are released when we do things that we like to do that, hey, when we went outside the bounds of our comfort zone, something good happened and I got a little bit of a serotonin or a dopamine hit. Mm -hmm. So that is like a very simplified version of um, nervous system science. I am not a neuroscientist, but I have found at the highest level these those things to be true and helpful in working on growth and navigating change. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean... Uh, that dopamine hit, like, you know, I had a friend, I had a friend, he, he always drove me crazy because, uh, you know, it was whenever we needed to do something, uh, he was, he was a list maker okay. and we would, you know, get tasked with doing X, Y, Z or whatever. Right. Well, if let's say he had X and Y on his list, but Z got added on and we had already done it, he had to write Z down on the list and then check <laughs> it off I'm like, why? He goes, it just makes me feel good. It makes me feel like I've accomplished something. And that's yep. a, that dopamine kick hitting in, right? Yeah. And if you can find ways to do that in healthy, encouraging ways that sort of unlock more progress for you, that can be the thing that is the difference between being stuck and being able to grow. I love for it. For sure. I love it. Well, Becky, I'm looking here at the time and man, we have covered a lot of ground and uh, we're, you know, 47 minutes or so into this conversation and it feels like we just started talking. Um, (laughs) Before we kind of work to close things out here a little bit, uh, is there anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to leave the audience with? You know, I think we've covered so much ground. I'm really, this has been a fun, fun exploration of some of my favorite topics. So I don't have anything that I think we've left out or forgotten. Uh, no, I love it. And, and I love the, you know, the the topics here that, that you hit on. I love what you're doing. 
And I'm hoping at this point in time that my listeners have kind of fallen in love with it as well. And so I'd say the only thing we have left uncovered here is how can folks get uh, how can folks get a hold of you? How can they find out more about Becky Morrison and and what you can do and offer for your coaching services? So the best way to track me down is to head over to my website, which is untanglehappiness.com. And there's a tab for podcast listeners where you can actually download the, there's a free downloadable there that's related to my book. Um, And then you can also from there link over to purchase a copy of my book, which is called The Happiness Recipe, A Powerful Guide to Living What Matters. And by the time this episode airs, although we're recording in February, I think that book will be available on Amazon. So, Oh, outstanding. Well, I will have, uh, I'll have links to that in the show notes and, uh, with the book being out, I'll make sure that there's information on how to get to the book there as well. Awesome. Uh, yeah. No, this has been a fun conversation. I really appreciate you spending the time uh, with me and my audience. And just keep doing what you're doing. And I wish you all the success in the world. Thanks, Earl. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk. No, it's it's been great. And audience, uh, thank you all for being with us. And I really know and hope that you took away a lot of great information here. Uh can find your formula for happiness you can learn to say no a little bit more and take stock of what season you're in and if you have trouble go visit becky's site and she'll get you right back on the right path uh, with that i want to say thank you all uh, for continuing to take your responsibility of rating and reviewing the show and sharing it out so great messages like uh, what becky has to share can get spread far and wide uh, if you have any comments, uh, questions, or concerns for me, burden.command at gmail.com. With that, I look forward to speaking with you all again in the next episode. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, the Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the interview. Electric Acid. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for Season 2 of the Wanna Bet Podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that Season 2 starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but WannaBet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.